Great stuff. So we're continuing a little series. So if you're a visitor here today, we're working our way through the book of Isaiah, which is a book in the Old Testament. Um, and it's quite a tricky book. Um, it contains some beautiful passages. It contains some really tricky passages. Um, once again, Doherty Design, available to hire for websites, um, all of your publishing needs. Um, so... <laughs> So we're talking about Isaiah, and we're going to start... Last week, Marion did a brilliant job of introducing us to this alternative reality in Isaiah chapter 6. But we're going to go back to Isaiah chapter 1, because effectively, for Isaiah to have a reason to speak, something must be going on. So we're going to take a little look at what's going on. So, those of you who know, this is a photo of Isaiah um, from AD 700 BC. Um, Normally, I pick um, Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan to be my image for... Old Testament prophets, but I thought I'd go younger this time, go with a bit of the Ewan McGregor. Um, so Isaiah is sometimes called the royal prophet or the court prophet because he had access to all these kings, which was slightly unusual. Basically, the idea is that he was based in Jerusalem and he was a frequent visitor to the court of the king, usually with bad news, it must be said, because things weren't going well. So we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 1. As you can see from the title, it's not the best start. A rebellious nation. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. And then jumping on to verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. Convocations, just a large gathering. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Wow. Pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? So what is he saying? Well, I thought I'd start with a story. These are my lovely children. (laughs) So, obviously, Tom, you will recognize from playing bass, then Abby, Caleb, and Josh. We were on holiday visiting Marion's sister. On holiday, 
And Marion got it into her head that the kids should do some schoolwork. She had made them bring some books with them. Tom had just started his A-levels, and Marion had this brilliant plan that he should do some work. Needless to say, there was some resistance to this suggestion. There was a big fight. Marion laid down the law. We left the room. We came down five minutes later. The window was open, and there was no sight of Tom, Josh, or Caleb. Abigail had been left behind. She came up to us and asked for permission to climb out of the window and join her siblings. That's why this verse really spoke to me this morning. I have reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. So the point is, the reason I tell you this story, there is a reason, is very simple. Tom and Josh knew they shouldn't do this. They knew there was a right way to behave, i.e. what mum says. (laughs) Caleb just went along for the ride. But Abby couldn't bring herself to rebel in this way, so she came to ask for permission. So in the book of Isaiah, what we have is God saying to Israel, you haven't got an excuse. You know how you're supposed to behave. You can't just make stuff up. Actually, I have given you, in what we call the law, a whole way to live. But you are choosing to ignore that and go a different way. Now, the question is, does that matter? Well, yes, it does. It's interesting. In the book of the law, when you look at the first five books of the Old Testament, the final book is like a summary of all the others. So Deuteronomy, which in Hebrew, the name of that book is, these are the words, because these are the words Moses speaks. There's three great speeches that Moses gives to the people of Israel before they move into the promised land. And it's like he's reminding them of all that they are, before they take one step into this new life. And he finishes by saying, guys, all this stuff you've been told, all this law that you've been given, all this stuff God has revealed to you about how to live and how to be his people is a matter of life and death. He says, today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life. Because this is the point of this story. The point of Isaiah telling the people they're going in the wrong direction is because it's a choice between life and death. God wants them to live a life that is full of purpose and meaning, to be a light to the nations. But instead, time and time again, they're making bad choices. And the question for us, when we look at our lives, is how are we going to live? What are we going to use to guide us in our choices, in how we choose to live our lives? A little while ago, the British Humanist Society gave some advice. And it put this advert on the side of the buses. It said, there probably is no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So for the Humanist Society, the key thing to getting the most out of life is to ignore God, is to say there probably isn't a God, now stop worrying and get on with your life. Now there's two things there that are quite interesting. One, it says probably, and two, it says stop worrying. Stop worrying. Why would people be worrying? 
And it's because I think people, us, we have some sense that maybe there is a right way to live, a better way to live. And so what they're saying is you need to jettison that baggage and then you will be free to live the life you've always wanted. The only problem with this, as one writer points out, is when we look at the world around us, if we were to go out onto the streets outside the church and interview everyone, would everyone who has nothing to do with God say they are enjoying their life? Would everyone say, I'm smashing it, mate, living my best life? I'm having such a brilliant time. No, they wouldn't. So it's a fundamental lie to say, if I live without God, I will enjoy life. Life's complicated and tricky and messy. It has its ups, it has its downs. So the idea that somehow jettisoning jettisoning God will somehow create a happier life for you just isn't borne out by the facts or the evidence. It's just not true. One writer describes this as living life as freedom from. I will find freedom by denying these other things, by rejecting these other things. That true freedom is being free from anything that tries to tell me or guide me or give me any idea on how to live my life. Because ultimately, my life should be free. I should be able to live a life without boundaries. It's like the idea of here I am, I have no map, no compass, no phone, but I can do anything I want. I can go anywhere, I can be anything. Well, the evidence seems to suggest that when confronted with that choice, most people have a massive existential crisis. (laughs) They're kind of like, people telling you, you can be anything, doesn't always help. In fact, it can create a massive sense of anxiety. That ultimately there's this best life out there somewhere and I'm supposed to be pursuing this best life, but I don't know where to start. I don't know where to look. I don't know where to begin. The other analogy that people sometimes use is they like to say, life is a highway, which a little quote there from Rascal Flatts in the wonderful soundtrack to the movie Cars. I recommend you listen to it on Spotify or your other streaming platforms are also available. We say life is a highway. I can go anywhere. I can get in the car and I can drive. My friend, Wolf, he is taking some time off. He's hiring a camper van and he's going to drive across America. It's the very image of freedom and isn't that an adventure? The interesting thing about this is it's a slight myth because what you discover is somebody else has decided where all those roads go. So what you're actually doing is following someone else's roads. And I think that's true for life so often that we think we're making free choices, but in fact what we're doing is we're going down roads other people have designed for us. Whether it's our parents, whether it's society, whether it's the movies and the music that we listen to, they paint a picture of a particular life and we go down that road pursuing that life that they're holding out to us. The only problem is most of the ideas we get about what a good life looks like through media is designed by people who are trying to get you to buy tickets. They aren't interested whether you do well or not. They're interested in whether you see their thing as an element in your pursuit of happiness. They have a path for you, a route for you. The other thing I think that is really interesting when we say, oh, I want to be free to choose whatever I want, that implies that you always do what you think 
is best for you? Who here is always able to do the thing they know that is best? How many people here end up doing things that they know aren't particularly good for them? Yeah, exactly. So I want to introduce you to a beautiful, a beautiful analogy. I want to introduce you to the elephant and the rider. The elephant and the rider is in a book called um, Switch by two brothers whose names escape me at the moment. But anyway, <clears throat> they talk about the fact that you are your mind and your emotions. Your mind is the tiny, tiny little rider on the top of the elephant. The elephant is your emotions and your desires. When there's a decision to be made, who do you think wins? Between the elephant and the rider. The elephant nearly always wins. The rider might be able to nudge the elephant in little directions, but he's not going to have a lot of control. And this is the reality of life, isn't it? When people say to you, be whatever you want. You're free to choose to do anything you like. What you actually find yourself doing is the things you desire. The things to do with your feelings, your emotions, your desires. And sometimes those things have been created in you by a whole range of different factors. So for me, I have a highly addictive personality. If I start playing a game on my phone, I can lose ages doing it. The reality is, this little pleasure inevitably leads to more and more and more and more. And that's the problem. When we give in to our desires, when we allow our desires to rule us, what happens is they begin to rule over us. We actually surrender some of that freedom. So this is the contrast, is this idea of you're free to do whatever you want, but some of those choices will actually rob you of the freedom to do whatever you want. Those habits, those addictions, those behaviors that you begin to create in your life soon became the Lord over you. And it becomes a downward spiral. So once again, I ask you this question. A life without rules, a life without constraints, a life without any guidance is actually a myth. There's always something trying to lead you in a particular direction. Whether that's your past, your present, your emotions, your desires, other people selling you things. You're always being funneled in different directions. And a lot of those directions actually lead away from your goal, which is to find freedom and life. So my argument is freedom from doesn't actually give you freedom at all. I want to suggest that we are created for freedom for something. We find freedom for something. And I came across this quote. It's a little long, but I absolutely love it. Freedom for doesn't expand with the demolishing of boundaries. Rather, it flourishes when a goodwill is channeled towards the good by constraints that are gifts. That's not the shape of a ho-hum life of rule following. It's an invitation to a life that is secure enough to be courageous, like the rails of a roller coaster that lets you do loop after loop. What if some of this guidance from God on how to live is like the rails of a roller coaster? It doesn't rob you of freedom. It enables you to go faster, further, higher, and more exciting 
than you would be able to without them. How about that as a thought? That Jesus came to give life in all its fullness. God wants you to experience life in all its fullness. And what if life in all its fullness is found in living the life that he describes to us in Scripture? Freedom for brings your life into focus. But when we discover what God's will for our life is, it gives us a focus. Rather than you can do anything, God says, how about doing this? Follow this. Pursue this. Get involved with this. Be part of my adventure. But all too often, we think the focus is religion. That when I talk about being following God and doing what God wants for your life, you think, okay, that's going to church. It's reading the Bible. It's praying. But what did we just read in Isaiah? Isaiah saying to them, this kind of religion is meaningless to me. I'm not interested in you jumping through hoops. I'm not interested in you turning up at church. I'm not interested in you doing all these things if you haven't got the rest of your life headed in the right direction. Now, Isaiah is a tale of two cities. In the book of Isaiah, we see constantly the writer returning to these two images. There's the Zion, Jerusalem, and he contrasts Jerusalem as it is with the Jerusalem that God dreams of. Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of wholeness, oneness with God, each other, and creation. Jerusalem. So there's this picture of how things should be. But unfortunately, Isaiah is confronted by things as they currently are. And so he says this, See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. The rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They love bribes, chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Basically, they had made life all about me, me, me. They had, in effect, rather than caring about the others in their midst, they have basically accumulated, grabbed hold of, built up, taken as much as they could for themselves in order to try and find the life they wanted. And in doing that, they became clones of all the nations around them. And in particular, that is, sounds fairly harmless until you realize that that meant they started to sacrifice their children in fires. Their behavior went completely out of control. This people that were meant to be a light to the nations began to show the world a way of behaving that was the exact opposite of what God had called them to be. And so God says to them, you can't go on being my people. You can't go on living in this land. You can't go on living in Jerusalem if you are going to show the world the opposite of what I want you to be. So I'm going to kick you out. I'm going to send you away because ultimately you are not representing me the way I have called you to be. Because the way I have called you to be is not about me, me, me. It's actually about others. He says, learn to do what is right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And then you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So if you want to be the kind of people God has called you to be, if you want to live the life God is calling you to live, 
then it's about putting others first rather than me, me, me. But there's a problem. And we see it in Isaiah. How do we get from things as they are, both in Jerusalem but also in our own lives, to this idea of what God wants, to be the city God created them to be? Because Isaiah looks around and he says, this is a mess and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so the book of Isaiah hinges in chapter 39. And Isaiah, rather than just constantly being full of judgment with little glimmers of hope, switches gear and becomes a prophet of hope. He begins to talk about how we can get from the city as it is to the city as it should be. How we can get from the life as it is to the life God wants us to live. And he starts to talk about this key character called the servant. And this is a reading we read every year at Christmas. For us, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accompany this. He is going to send someone that is going to enable Israel to be what they are meant to be. He's going to send someone to make it possible to live the life God has called us to live. And this servant isn't going to be a mighty king on a white charger with his waving his sword, leading an army. He's going to come and he's going to suffer. He's going to give his life for others. And so in the New Testament, when we read the stories of Jesus, what do we find? Time and time and time again, Jesus spending time with the people everyone else said, ignore them. Spending time with the sick, the lepers. Spending time with people that everyone else had neglected and turned away from. We see Jesus embody, be the very thing God called Israel to be, a light to the nations. Now, for us, what does that mean for us? How do we make that switch from the life as it is to the life God has called us to? Well, the good news this morning is it's all about grace. Because God says, I recognize you guys have got yourself in a mess and you are not going to get yourself out of it. So I am going to take action. I am going to send my servant. I am going to send my son to lift you out of the mess and establish you in a new way of being. It says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accompany us. This is something God is going to do. You don't deserve it. You cannot earn it. But I am going to do this on your behalf. And in Isaiah, we read, come now, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they should be like wool. And so Jesus comes into the world to save and rescue us. The suffering servant who eventually gives his life on a cross Not for himself, but for us. The embodiment of that love of God, that call of God to love others. And in dying on that cross, he sets us free from the mess we've created for ourselves. He sets us free to live the life that he wants us to live. But again, I don't want you to think this is grace from. This isn't grace to save you from something. The cross is a key that unlocks something beautiful. Grace for something. 
God's grace is in us and for us, and in turn, it is for something. One writer talks about it like this. He says it's like an infusion from God to us. Grace isn't just forgiveness, a covering and acquittal. It's an infusion, a transplant, a resurrection, a revolution of the will and the wants. It's the hand of God who made you and loves you, reaching into your soul with the gift of a new will. Grace is freedom. So it's not just about grace from our mess. It's grace for the life God is calling us to. And it's a transfusion of the will. It changes us. And I stand before you, not sorted, fixed. I'm broken. And in this grace transfusion, what happens is I recognize my mess, my brokenness, and my need for God's help. And that I don't deserve it. So then when I encounter other people, I don't see them as someone I can fix. Someone it's my job to help from a position of power. I recognize someone else who's broken. But what I do recognize is that grace I have experienced that has transformed and changed me can transform and change them. Grace from God to me flowing through me into the lives of others. That's the transfusion. That's the transplant of God's grace into us so that it can flow out into the lives of those around us. God changes our hearts and our minds so that we are free to love other people. I've seen it so powerfully in my own life. There are so many times, I am at nature lazy and selfish. Friday nights are pretty sacrosanct for me. If you ring me on a Friday night, I probably won't answer. Friday night, I want to watch an episode of something. I want to have a beer. I want to put my feet up. I want to relax. I love Friday nights. A few years ago, Marion interrupted my Friday night. None of you are surprised that it's Marion that interrupted my Friday night. But she said, there's someone who is fleeing an abusive relationship and she needs to come and stay. Okay, fine. That shouldn't really disrupt my Friday night too much. However, the room she's going to stay in, she doesn't feel safe. You need to put a lock on the door. Sorry? You need to put a lock on the door. Now, those of you who know me well know I have many, many fine qualities. DIY is not one of them. This is not something I feel competent doing, comfortable doing, or even know where to start in doing. YouTube is a wonderful thing. And so I found myself buying a lock, fitting a lock. And at 9.30 on Friday night, I still hadn't finished it. Because anybody who's put a new thing into a door, it doesn't quite fit. You're chiseling away, trying to make the gap the right size. and It just doesn't fit again, so you do it. Anyway, by about 10 o'clock, 10.30, I find myself thinking, how did I get here? I should be on the sofa with a beer. I shouldn't be doing this. And that's the key. I honestly think in the Christian life, if you find yourself thinking, I shouldn't be doing this, you're probably doing the right thing. It's probably a sign that God is at work in you and he has led you to a place where you are up to your neck in something and actually it probably is the right thing to be doing because it's not about you. Me fitting that lock, it's not about me. It's about God changing me to care more about the person who needed a safe place than my Friday night. 
And that's a transformation. That's a transfusion of God's love and grace into my life so that I can pour it into somebody else's. And that's what's on offer. And Jesus says, if you do this, you will be the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The city on the hill, I think he's talking about, is Jerusalem. That heavenly city, that picture from Isaiah of the faithful, righteous city that cares for those who can't help themselves. And that is a picture of us as we follow God, as we allow that grace transfusion in our own lives to pour into the lives of the people around us. It's like we set off a massive light in the midst of the darkness. So today, we face a choice. Every day we face a choice. What life are we going to live today? Today, are we going to live a life that's giving into our desires, that's going down the roads mapped out by other people, that leads in the opposite direction to the freedom we want? Or are we going to choose today, actually, do you know what? It's not all about me. <laughs> God, change me transfuse me with your grace and love so that I can love others. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for your initiative where you, recognizing the mess we were getting ourselves into, that you stepped into the world to save and rescue us, to free us from the mess, but to give us new purpose to give us freedom for that purpose, to love and care for others. That grace poured into us so that we can love others. And so I just pray now, Lord, for each of us. Lord, we just want to maybe hold out our hands and say, Lord, we need you. We need more of your grace poured into us. That, Lord, we recognize at times we get judgmental, we get lazy. Lord, will you transfuse us? Will you trans... <laughs> Yeah, will you transform our hearts from being about us to genuinely loving others? That, Lord, where we encounter people today, will you help us to show your grace to them? Where we need to forgive someone, Lord, would we forgive? Where we need to help someone, Lord, would we help? Give us eyes to see the opportunities, Lord, in the world around us today, tomorrow, this week, this month to show others something of the grace we have received. That we don't deserve it, we can't earn it. But Lord, you loved us and you poured your love and grace into us. Help us to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.